on the wings of the snow Anybody familiar with that song? Got a few? <laughs> First timers that heard that song? Like a couple? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, that song, that particular rendition is sung by a guy named Ferlin Husky. And I just love saying his name. Um, for those who do know that song, I'm going to apologize now because you're going to find yourself later today or later this week singing that song. I'm like, why am I singing this song? I haven't heard it in years, and then you're going to remember, oh yeah, we, we got a little clip of it on Sunday. If you'd like to, if you like, you heard that, like, wow, that was really good, I want to know more about that song, you can YouTube it, it's called Wings of a Snow White Dove. Um, I remember my mom singing it when I was growing up in church, and um, I guess uh, maybe it's not as catchy today, but uh, our, our focus this morning is the baptism of Jesus, and we're going to primarily be in the Gospel of Matthew this morning in chapter 3. Beginning in verse 13, if you'd like to make your way there uh, in the scriptures. Uh, all four Gospels share of this event that happened, but they all do it in different ways. Uh, Luke gives about two or three verses to this event, which is kind of odd because if, if you're familiar with how we've looked at Luke, Luke spends a lot of time setting up the ministry of Jesus Christ, and then he gets to the baptism, and we kind of do a little snippet. Uh, you look into the Gospel of Mark, you find something very similar to what we find in Luke, and that Mark gives about two verses to this event. But Mark, uh, it's kind of like a Russian gospel because he's just rushing to get to Jesus, and so everything's kind of snippet until Jesus starts doing his thing. John's story or, or recording of this event is more of a testimonial recollection. John is looking back and remembering when he baptized Jesus and what he saw and how, what he experienced. And, and it leads into proclaiming Jesus as the Lamb of God, which we'll deal with that here this morning. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Matthew gives the largest focus of this event, of the actual event of the baptism of Jesus. And though this, this, this passage does not necessarily deal with the doctrine of baptism, we're going to deal with that uh, a little bit this morning just to understand uh, not only the context of this baptism, but of our own. Um, but we're going to walk away this morning. My prayer is that we walk away seeing from this passage. There are two calls and there are two reminders upon our life dealing from the baptism of Jesus. And so let's read it and we'll begin our, our, our going through God's word. And then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, that's John, consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you just to be able to gather in your name and to sing your praises. You are great. And we thank you for what you accomplished through Jesus Christ, Lord, in removing our sin and our shame and reconciling us back to you. 
Lord, I pray in this time that has already been lifted up to you. You just move me out of the way. Allow me just to be an instrument of righteousness for you. Allow your scriptures to be opened up by the power of your spirit that we would not only be given a deeper understanding of your scriptures, but that we would see how it applies to us and we would begin living it out in our life as we leave this place in a little bit. I pray that your kingdom and your will would be done in each and every life, including my own. I pray that you would guide and lead us to where you want us to be, not where I think we should go. But I pray for the forgiveness of all of us. As we continue to fall short, we continue to wrestle with sin. But I thank you for those who are here and know you as their Lord and Savior, the promise we find in your word that you don't see us that way anymore. Pray for those who are here this morning who do not know you as their Lord and Savior. Maybe they know about you. Maybe they're seeking and trying to figure you out. Lord, that your spirit would speak to them, that you would open their eyes to see, give them ears to hear, let a heart be softened to accept what you are laying before us this morning. I should be our brothers and sisters in Christ who aren't here for whatever reason. Father, just to put a longing and a desire in the heart to return once again to be in your presence. Lord, you know that this world is full of uncertainty at this moment. Again, I just reminded of your scripture, you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Help us to live in the truth instead of the lie. Again, we just lay down before you. We submit ourselves to you and pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to use Mark and Luke uh, sparingly. I mean, there's not a whole lot from Mark and Luke that we get with the baptism of Jesus that we don't have here in Matthew. We're going to look at the Gospel of John's recording of this event in about two weeks. Uh, but for now, uh, our passage begins in verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee. And as you're reading, studying your scripture, one thing you can do is you can look for these phrases, these, these notations that take us back to something. And what Mark is led to do by the Spirit is to take us back to the last time we've seen Jesus within his own gospel. And that would be at the end of chapter 2, when we're told that he went to live in the city of Nazareth so that he might... Be, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled and he would be called a Nazarene. So Matthew is connecting this particular event to that one. Now what we know, because we've spent the last several weeks between those two events, is that a lot has happened since Jesus went to Nazareth. That, that particular recording is after they came back from Egypt when they fled from Herod. So we've looked in Scripture and looked in the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of Luke. We've seen how when Jesus was 12, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to the Feast of Passover, and they momentarily misplaced him. And then they found him, and then everything was well, and he submitted to them, and he went back, and he grew up in Nazareth. So from that last event concerning Jesus from the Gospel of Luke, we have about 28 to 30 years until Jesus emerges on the pages of Scripture once again, particularly here in Matthew chapter 3. We have to be aware when it comes to the Gospels, though they record history, they're never intended to be a historical book. They're meant to lead people to understand who Jesus was, what he did, and why that's important for every individual's life. And so in the Gospels, there are 
relative timestamps to help us understand the situation to which God's people are living. And we've seen that when they mentioned like Herod and, and, and Caesar and things like that. So we understand, okay, this is a scenario of what is going on in the Jewish people's life, and this is where Jesus' ministry begins. Another reminder we need as we walk through this particular event is Matthew is led by the Spirit to write to a primarily Jewish audience. And so the words and languages and phrases that Matthew uses throughout his gospel in 2020 may seem like a foreign language to us. And sometimes we may just read over it and get to the next thing. But Matthew's original audience, having a Jewish background, would have seen so much more, even in these few passages, that we tend to look over and miss. And so we're going to draw some of those out this morning. As we were dealing with John the Baptist and his ministry, John has been setting up, preparing the way for the arrival of the Messiah. He's been preparing hearts, calling for people to repent, calling them to be baptized in a baptism of repentance, and then to bear fruit with that repentance. And now we come to Matthew chapter 3, and Jesus finally shows up on the scene that John has been preparing for, he's been waiting in expectation for. And the strange thing about this is when Jesus shows up, John seems reluctant to baptize Jesus. He does not seem ready to do what Jesus is asking him to do. The word prevented there in verse 14 means that John was trying to stop Jesus. He was trying to deter him. He was trying to talk Jesus out of what Jesus was asking John to do in baptizing him. And it seems odd since John has been hyping the coming of the Messiah. But what we need to understand is John, as we looked at last week, understood his role in the big scheme of things. Even though John was the baptizer for repentant people, John understood who Jesus was and who he was in his presence. John had a vague idea that this was God. This was the Holy of Holies. And I am not in a place nor authority to baptize Jesus. Instead, because of who Jesus is, he should be baptizing me. See, John understood that he was a sinner in the presence of God. And as we see in the Gospels, what happens when people try to correct Jesus is Jesus comes back and recorrects them. He changes their line of thinking. He gives them a deeper understanding to which Jesus does this. And if you notice in our passage, when John tried to prevent Jesus from being baptized, Jesus answered, let it be so now. Jesus does not say to John, you are wrong. He simply lets John know that what is about to happen has to be done, as he says in verse 15, because it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And that's a very strange phrase, what it means it is necessary for us to complete everything that forms part of a relationship for obedience to God. So an easy way for us to read it would be, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all obedience. And in this statement, Jesus is revealing his life statement, his life mission. He is going to be completely obedient to the will and word of God. That didn't begin at the cross. Jesus had to be obedient his entire life. Otherwise, when he got to the cross, his sacrifice would not have mattered. He had to be perfect. And after Jesus gives his reasoning that I am doing this to fulfill my obedience to my Father and to fulfill my relationship obligations to him, John, believe it or not, agrees. 
So good job, John. I mean, we want to pat him on the back in this moment. But this should be our response when the word of God is spoken over us. We agree with it. When God's word speaks to our hearts, when it, it, it rattles us, it convicts us, it brings us to needing to have a response, what we do is we need to agree with it. This is what John is doing. He is agreeing with what God has spoken over his life and what had to be done, even if he did not fully understand it or was reluctant at first. In church, when we agree with what God has spoken, we say, Amen. That's the biblical word for agreement. I am agreeing what the preacher said. I am agreeing with what the Word of God has spoken. I am agreeing with what has been prayed over me or over us or for us. So when we say amen at the end of a prayer, we're saying I agree with that prayer, but I also agree with how God is going to answer that prayer. And it may not be according to what I want to have happen. It may not be to what I expect, much like John didn't expect this, but I am in agreement with it. I am amening it, saying, God, I am fully at your will, and it is up to you to do what you want to have done. But what comes to an interesting question for us in this particular passage is why was Jesus baptized? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. The baptism represented the individual had repented, repented, and then therefore had agreed to bear fruit with that repentance. So if we were going to be baptized by John, what would happen is we would understand there's sin in my life. And I need to confess that sin, repent of that sin, be baptized as a symbol of that repentance, and then live a life which shows I have in fact repented of that. But here's the thing. Jesus wasn't coming to repent. He wasn't coming to repent of a sin because if he had been repenting of a sin, then he wouldn't have been perfect and therefore could not have been the Christ. So why was Jesus baptized? When we look at baptism in the Christian life, because it's different than the baptism of John. John's was a baptism of repentance. The Christian baptism is a baptism of confession of salvation. Baptism for us today is the physical method we use to confess to the church and we confess to the world that we believe Jesus died, therefore we go into the water, and that he rose again and we come out of the water. Which means that baptism is not the means of our salvation. You can be baptized and still be lost. You can not have been baptized and be saved. See, baptism isn't God stamping us with his, uh, his approval, saying, okay, I'm going to let you in now. Baptism is rather a confession that I believe Jesus was who the Bible said he was. He was the atoning sacrifice for my sins. He died for me, took the wrath of God upon him. He rose again, and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And I believe that, and by my confession and belief in that, I'm following his example by dying to my former self and rising again as a new creation. But if we take baptism as the sign of our salvation, then what we're saying is, I have done something in my life to prove to God that I deserve to, in fact, be saved. I'm saying, I worked this out. Yet we look in Scripture, and Scripture clearly says that all salvation is a free gift by God. 
So our salvation is not what we have done, even through the means of baptism, but rather what God has done through Jesus Christ. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved. This is not your doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Salvation is not our doing. It's not our idea or something that we have finally worked or done something good enough to receive. Salvation is freely given to all who personally confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of their sins and the promise of eternal life. That's where you say amen. Yeah, we'll try it again. Salvation is a gift freely given to all who personally confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of their sins and the promise of eternal life. Amen. So what that means... You may be here this morning and you state that your salvation is based because, well, I was baptized. Or you may state my salvation, well, I'm a member at that church or I go to that church. There's a problem with that. You're saying there's something you did to receive your salvation. But salvation is a gift. It's not by works, not by your doing. So you might be here and have been baptized and you are completely lost. But you also might be here and have never been baptized and are completely saved. Our baptism isn't the method that God says, okay, now that you've finally been baptized, here's my spirit. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, dying for our sins and rising again, when we believe in our heart and we confess it to someone, God immediately gives us the spirit. Because that's the sign of our inheritance, something our guarantee that we will never be separated from God. You look in the book of Acts, when the first time the Spirit came upon the disciples, look at the passage, none of them were baptized after the Spirit came. It's because they believed Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, who died and rose again. Now, after that event, when anyone else came to salvation in Christ, they were baptized as a confession of their faith that they are, in fact, believing Jesus died and he rose again. That's the doctrine of baptism. But then we go back to our original question. Why was Jesus baptized? Well, the first part we already hit on, he was baptized to show his obedience to the Father. He was told John that I am being obedient to God and I am following what God has commissioned me to do. The second reason Jesus Christ was baptized was to give us an example. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And we cannot have salvation until we have repented of our sinful nature. And so Jesus was giving the baptism that in order to find salvation in him, you must first repent of your sins. So John prepared the way for Jesus, and Jesus came to show the way to God. That being restored to God in relationship comes by repentance, which comes by conviction, and conviction is given to us by the Holy Spirit. So by Jesus' baptism, he was showing this is the way to God. Jesus was baptized to give us an example. We have to repent before we can receive forgiveness. We have to understand there is a sinful part about us. There's something that is keeping us from the holy presence of the Father, and that has to be dealt with, and it can only be dealt with through Jesus Christ. Now, once John is on God's plan, once John, and I don't know if he fully understood it, but once John said, okay, then I'll baptize you, Jesus, he, he, he consented, 
Jesus was baptized, and Mark and Luke both agree that something miraculous happened. Matthew says that the heavens were, were opened there in verse 16. Now that could mean that it was a cloudy day, and when Jesus came out of the water, the clouds parted, and the sun came through, and it was just like, ah, oh, sunshine. I mean, that could be what it meant. I mean, it could be that simple that it just happened to happen at that very moment. It's hard to know exactly what was entail or what was trying to be spoken of in this in this phrase. But Matthew again is writing to who? What type of people? Jewish people. And so Matthew, what he does throughout his gospels that a lot of times we we miss is Matthew uses imagery the Jewish people would have been familiar with in what we call the Old Testament. And so when Matthew says the heavens are open, there's several thoughts that could go with this. It could be creation language. When God created the heavens and the earth and then put an expanse between them, to which Jesus would be the, the filler of that expanse so man could be restored back to God, no longer separated him. It could be flood talk. When the heavens opened and the judgment of sin came upon the earth to cleanse the earth, Jesus would do this through his life, death, and resurrection. It could be referring to Jacob's dream in which he dreamed that the angels were descending and ascending into the heavens and he could see into the heavens because they were open. And Jesus came to do this for us, that when he rose again, he made us to have full access to the God of the heavens. It could be the... the the language from the book of Exodus, when the presence of God consumed Mount Sinai in Exodus and God revealed his law to his people and called them to obedience to which Jesus came to fulfill God's law and to be perfectly obedient. It could be taken from 2 Kings when Elisha prayed to God to open his servants' eyes so they might see the, the armies of the Lord that were around them and protecting them and fighting for them to which Jesus was the epitome of this. He came to fight for us because we couldn't fight for ourselves. All of these make sense when Matthew uses this phrase that the heavens were opened. And I imagine as an original Jewish reader, when they read that, at least one of those things would have came to mind and had given them a deeper understanding about who Jesus Christ is and what he was doing. Then he says that the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove. The Spirit of God is another word for the Holy Spirit. Mark says it's just the Spirit in Mark chapter 1. Luke specifies it as the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 3. The reason for the difference is because different audiences need different cues. And so they're specifying a little bit more, but Matthew's audience would have known that this Spirit is the same Spirit that was in Genesis that hovered over the face of the deep. This was the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. The tough part about Matthew's rendering of this event actually comes at the end of verse 16. and says, And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. And, and the question is, who is the he? And so some people believe that the he is Jesus. That Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove upon him. But I don't agree with that. Because Jesus Christ is the physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit and of God. They are equal. So this event is not for Jesus' benefit. Jesus never doubted who He was or what He was supposed to do. He never doubted His relationship with God. So this benefit, if it's not for Jesus, then who else would it be for? It would be for John. 
And if you go to the Gospel of John and you read John's recollection testimony about this event, the he is very clearly John the Baptist. And it is this event to which John sees the heavens opened. He sees the Spirit descending like a dove, not that the Spirit is a dove, but like a dove, just like in the book of Acts, when the Spirit came, it came like tongues of fire. It came like a dove, and then he heard this voice. All of this was to benefit John, because what was John doing before this moment? He was baptizing and preaching what message? Of repentance, to prepare the way for the Lord. But now, I don't have to prepare anymore. He's here. And after this event, John's message completely changes, not to prepare the way for the Lord, but guess what? He's here. He's among us. I've seen him. I saw the Spirit come down upon him, and I heard the voice from heaven speak directly to him. And so now we need to be with him. And this is what happens in our own life. When we come into relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it should completely change the message we present the conversations we have, the things we do. There's no more recording of John baptizing for repentance in the Gospels. There's no more. And so John's complete job listing, his complete responsibility had changed because now Jesus was here and now is not prepare, but to watch for, to be ready for. The dove is also, for the Jewish people, a symbolic thing of peace. Spirit came like a dove. Peace was coming down. Peace on earth. That should take us to Christmas, right? It's also the symbol of the Jewish people as a whole. And so this symbolism that, that Matthew is using is saying that, okay, here is Jesus, the perfect symbol of peace and representation of what a righteous Jew should look like. He is a full embodiment of what God is requiring of his people. But as Matthew's audience, which was what? Jewish. As they're reading this, can you think of any story in the Old Testament to which a dove was significant? Noah. Poor Noah. You know, we were upset about a month stay-at-home order. Noah was in a boat with his family for over a year with smelly animals, not a whole lot of airflow. But when it came time for things to change, he sends out a raven first, which just kind of flies around. That's kind of weird. But then he sends out a dove. Eventually a dove comes back and brings back an olive branch. And then he, he keeps it for another seven days and sends it out again, and it doesn't come back. And it was a symbol in that moment that God was faithful to his word. That God had, had done what he said he was going to do. He protected Noah and his family in the ark. And now he's going to be faithful in starting things new. To which Jesus, again, is the embodiment of God's faithfulness to his word. That he will never leave us. He will always fight for us. And he comes to save us. Then we have this voice from heaven that speaks. Again, the Jewish people. This would have taken them to Mount Sinai. Something they should never have forgotten. When God's presence engulfed the mountain, he spoke to Moses, and Moses delivered his word to his people. It was a sign of authority, a sign of, 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 of love and affection and a desiring a relationship. It was a sign here in Matthew that divine communication was resuming between God 
and his people, which hadn't happened for over 400 years. And all this we can just read over, but it's pointing to who Jesus is. And then, if, if that wasn't enough, this voice says, This is my beloved Son, verse 17, with whom I am well pleased. This phrase, again, Matthew's audience was, See, I'm just trying to make sure it's Labor Day weekend. I know you all are tired. Matthew's audience was, okay, so they're reading this, and they they like, that sounds really familiar. I've read that before, because it comes from the Old Testament from two different places. It comes from Psalm chapter 2, in verse 7, it says, I will tell of a decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, if you're not familiar with Psalm chapter 2, because it's not really one of my favorite psalms, that psalm is all about people rebelling against God's authority. But in the midst of the psalm, there's this prophecy about God's Son coming and that the submission to the Son is good. And so John, or Matthew is led to take from Psalm 2 that Jesus has come to deal with rebellious people. And our rebellion is sin. But Jesus is God's Son. He is a beloved Son. The other passage comes from Isaiah chapter 42, it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nation. This particular verse in Isaiah 42 comes from the section of the prophecy of Isaiah dealing with the suffering servant, to which Jesus is the fruition of the suffering servant. So the statement made at John's baptism of Jesus wasn't something just, oh, it's my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. The statement is, this is my son, my divine son, the one who is equal with me, and his mission here is to suffer in place of rebellious people. Well, that's a bigger statement. And yet John hears this to understand the beginning of what Jesus' ministry was truly all about. And John would understand this 40 days later. We'll look at it in two weeks. Because the next time John sees Jesus, he's not preparing the way, but he sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb. Fully understanding who Jesus' identity was. And yet, even though we're going to see in Scripture, John still wrestled with, Are you really the one that I've been hoping for? So now we've gotten this context. How do we apply this? What is the application from this passage in our life in 2020? We'll start with a simple application. If you're here this morning and you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you should be baptized. That's the simple application. Notice I did not say you need to be baptized. You should be baptized. You should want to let other people know what you believe, that you believe Jesus died for your sins and that he rose again. And you're joining in him, in a relationship with him, and making that known to the world. If you have yet to do that, then I want to encourage you to honestly pray about it. And, and here's the thing about baptism. Baptism has to be your choice. It's not something your parents could have done for you when you were a child or an infant. That's not salvation. That's someone else doing something for you in your place, but the only one who could do something for us is Jesus Christ. And so we follow in his baptism. The second thing, the calling, there's two calls and two reminders in this passage, and the first call is the call for obedience. 
Jesus was baptized to give an example of righteousness. Righteousness comes by obedient living. And our following Jesus calls us to live righteously or obediently to God's word. The danger, though, we have when we bring up obedience is this. Is we tend to want to go legalistic. We tend to want to make our obedience to God about what I should do and what I, sh I shouldn't do. Now, you can look in the Old Testament, and there are some clearly defined things of what you should do and shouldn't do. But then what we do is we kind of add to that, even though we're already wrestling with the first ten given to us. And we add things on top of it. And this is how I've seen this in my life. When I was growing up, see, my dad was a pastor, and so when I was growing up, I was told specifically I could not wear shorts on Sunday morning. You ever remember that? You ever have that done? Jason, another, another minister's kid. Which was odd because I knew my parents liked wearing shorts. And I couldn't figure out why was it okay to wear shorts every other day of the week, but on Sunday from 9.30 to 12.30, shorts were illegal. <laughs> and it didn't make sense. And what added on top of that is that I could wear shorts to church if it was vacation Bible school but not if it was Sunday morning. And I don't want you to think badly, my parents, what was actually going on, because I've asked my mom and dad about this, what, what was your thing with shorts growing up? I mean, what, what is that? What was going on is the church my dad was pastoring, there was this view that you needed to dress a certain way to show reverence to God. And certain attire was not reverential. I understand that, and I, I know people still, still believe that, okay? I'm not trying to make you feel bad about your attire if you're wearing shorts this morning. I don't believe that. I think you can wear a suit and tie and show up and still not have your heart ready to meet with God, and you can show up in shorts and sandals, and you could be fully devoted. It's not about our outer. It's what's on the inside. But because there was that, my dad did not want his ministry to create a stumbling block for others to hear what he was presenting through the Word of God. And so that made sense. I wish I got that information when I was younger and when I was wrestling with it, but that made sense because he didn't want people to say, well, how, why should I listen to this preacher if he can't even get his kids to dress right? So that makes sense. But we can do this. We can make legalistic things. When we talk about obedience, we can make these rules. Well, this is what a Christian does do, and this is what a Christian doesn't do. And there are things we should do and we shouldn't do, but we need to understand obedience it's not about our righteous rules or laws or charts. Obedience is about our response to the God who loves us. That's what obedience is. I understand God loves me, and so I want to live my life that shows I love him back. That's how Jesus defined it. John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He did not say you will make new ones. He said, you'll simply keep the ones I've already given you. And you'll live those out. And so by our obedience to God, we show that we love God and we understand God's love for us. But it's not to say, well, if you were a Christian, you wouldn't do that. That's ridiculous. The other thing we take from this passage, this calling, is the call to be an example. 
Jesus was baptized to give us an example. We are baptized to give an example to others that they should follow in Jesus' baptism. But it doesn't stop at our baptism. As Christians, we are called to be the example of Jesus Christ to the world. If you read in the book of Acts, the word Christian appears for the first time in the book of Acts. See, Jesus, when he called people, he didn't call them Christians. He called them followers or he called them disciples. He commissioned 12 to be apostles. But they were followers of his. They were disciples. In the book of Acts, the title Christian gets put on those who were following Jesus' teaching as a derogatory term. They were meaning to make fun of them. They looked at this group of people and they said, these people are living so much like Jesus, they're like little Christ. And the term Christian came. So when I say I'm a Christian, I say I am living by the example that Jesus has given me in Scripture so that others can see I live for Him. I'm the example of Christ to this world. I'm not Christ. <laughs> Don't hear that. I am not Christ. You're not Christ. But I am the example of Christ. So others might know Christ. Then we have some reminders this passage reminds us that obedience opens the door for the miraculous. Obedience opens the door for the miraculous. And again, this can be kind of touchy in our day and age because, you know, we deal with obedience and we, turn, we can turn it legalistic. We can deal with obedience making miraculous happen and we can turn it to like a word of faith thing where we say, well, if, God, if you do this, then I'll do that. You know, if you flood my bank account, then I'll be fully obedient. And that's not what this means at all. It means when I trust that God loves me and I live in response to that love God has for me, I am obedient and I am opening the doors for God to do what only God can do in my life. That does not mean every prayer I lift up to God is going to be answered, but it means that I am going to see the evidence of God moving and working throughout my life. This is what John does. He was obedient. He didn't understand it, but he was obedient. And then he sees the heavens open, he sees the Spirit coming down, and he hears. So when I'm obedient to God, I get to see God moving in my life, and I hear the voice of God speaking clearly to me. And just so you know, I'm not taking this just from this passage, let's use other passages of Scripture. Noah was obedient to God, though I doubt Noah fully understood what God meant when he was going to flood the earth. Because up to that point in Scripture, there's no mention of rain ever falling from the skies. But Noah, what did he do? He was obedient. And he was saved. Again, with the family, for over a year, in a boat, or an ark. He was obedient. He saw the miraculous of God doing something he never experienced before. Jacob was obedient to God. And God blessed Jacob in the Old Testament with his uncle Laban's flock, and both daughters, but the two daughter thing, that wasn't God's plan. That was like sin, deception, and all that. But still, God blessed Jacob because he was obedient to the promises he made. He gave him 12 sons, all of Laban's flocks, and the 12 sons became the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel. Moses, in the book of Exodus, was reluctantly obedient at first, right? God, if you can send someone else, please do it. Anybody else? I'll, I'll find someone. Reluctantly obedient, but when he got on board 
with God's plan and was obedient to what God had commissioned him to do, God said of Moses, he is the greatest prophet in all of Israel's history. And that he had a relationship to God like no one else in that time. He knew God face to face. You just go down the list of people you like in Scripture, people's stories we, we enjoy, and look at how they were obedient to God, and God did something miraculous in their life, but when they were disobedient to God, God brought conviction and judgment upon it. We see that in the nation of Israel. We saw that as Joshua brought Israel into the promised land. These were people who were not warriors or fighters, but because they were allowing the law of God to lead them, God blessed them with a land they did not deserve, and they drove the people out until they didn't drive them all out, I guess. But that led to problems down the line, didn't it? Samson, one of my favorite individuals as a child growing up, and now I look at him and I'm like, oh my goodness, thank goodness God can use anybody. Samson. Look at Samson's life. I don't know why he's so popular as a prophet. Most of his life was spent living in disobedience to what God had spoken over him before he was born. But then in his final breast, he completely submitted to God's will that was spoken over him. And in his final breath, he destroyed more Philistines than he did in his entire life. Because he was obedient. And the people of God saw the miraculous. If we want to see God move in our life in a way that we've never seen before, if we want to hear God speak from the heavens and speak to our hearts in a way we've never heard before, then it calls for loving obedience. And this is why many Christians fast. Fast is when you, you, you break away from something. People do it from media, they do it from food, they do it from things they know that they, they're wrestling with. It's so they can completely focus on God and get in tune with him. And Jesus put this expectation on us that we would fast as his followers. He said, when you fast, just like he said, when you pray or when you give. So if you're feeling like you're out of sync with God, maybe it's time to find something you need to break away from so you can get back in sync and hear what God wants to say. And this last thing, and the reason I say this for last, one is because it's at the very end of our passage, but I think it's something we definitely need to have fresh in our minds, we leave this place. The last thing we see is the reminder of how God sees us. God spoke over his son Jesus in verse 17. This is my beloved son. That word beloved means dearly loved, dearly prized, dearly valued. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I mean, that word well pleased means that I am very delighted. So God looks at His Son who's on earth fulfilling His mission and He speaks over Him, you are so valued by me. I am so delighted in what you are doing and what you're ultimately going to do. He looks at Jesus and says, I love you. I am head over heels in love with you. I am so pleased when I see you. And here's the thing. If you are in Christ, you are saved. You've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Bible defines you now as a child of God. The Bible, God's Word, His truth says, 
that you and I in our salvation are fully clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And that when God looks at you now, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, He does not see your past regrets. He does not see your current wrestling sinful matches. He sees the righteousness of Christ and God speaks over us as His children, my beloved child. You are dearly loved. I am head over heels in love with you. And I am so delighted in you. Isn't that what we need? We need that reminder as we wrestle with our identity that God speaks over us and sees us as his child and says, I am head over heels in love with you. You are so valued to me. You bring me such delight, such joy. And I know there's times that we don't feel that about ourselves because there's times I don't feel that about myself. There's times I feel like I'm just a huge disappointment to God, a huge disappointment to others. Because there are times, and I'm sure, I think you can relate, there are times I know I do things that I shouldn't do and I don't do things I know I should do. I am, I am amening what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. But then I need to go back to this, that God in his love for me is disciplining me, disciplining me as his child because he loves me. And I'm dearly valued by him. He finds joy when he sees me. And Satan may try to remind me of my failures, God just looks at me and smiles. That's my kid. That's my girl. That's my boy. They belong to me and I love them so much and nothing can ever separate my love for them. What an incredible reminder we need. Because too often we try to let the world define us or people in our lives define us what we should do or what we shouldn't do or how we should look or how we should act or how we should talk. God's already said that. You're my child. I love you. And I value you more than anything. You may be here this morning. And one of the responses you need is respond to God's love for you. Maybe you've already believed in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Maybe it's, you know, I, I have not followed through with baptism. I know it's not something I have to do to be saved, but it's something I, I should want to do in response to God's love for me, to let other people know I believe this is true. Maybe you're here this morning and you just need to worship God because he loves you and me more than we can ever imagine, more than we can ever comprehend on this side of eternity. Just thank God, God, thank you for loving me. I think Paul understood that. He, I'm the worst of sinners. And yet God loves me. He's for me. Perhaps you're here and you just need to begin a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It begins by admitting that you're a sinner. You fall short. You do things you know you shouldn't do. You don't do things you know you should do. Typically with our sins, we try to keep them secret. We don't, we don't blast them out in public because we don't want other people to know. But you need to know there's not a person in this room who does not wrestle with sin. What has changed by many in this room that needs to change in your life is to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, 
He took your punishment. He rose again that you might be completely forgiven. And the Bible says when you confess that you believe this in your heart and know it to be true, you will be saved. And so what I'm inviting you to do is to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven. I want to be given eternal life because I know God loves me. This is time of response. I'm going to ask Sir Nick to come and lead us. We're going to sing a song that's really fitting for our passage this morning, the baptism of Jesus. It's called Find Me in the River. And as he comes, I want to pray over us, and then I invite you to come.